Good morning and welcome to nearly 200 people on the East Coast of the United States uh, and in Europe and possibly in Russia and elsewhere who RSVP'd for today's event. I'm Jane Harmon, the President and CEO of the Wilson Center, former member of the United States Congress, and very excited uh, about the virtual program we are providing. While many of the Wilson Center's recent discussions have focused properly on the COVID-19 pandemic, our Kennan Institute in particular has looked beyond the horizon, analyzing the leaders and political developments that will define our post-COVID future. May we please have that future as soon as possible. Today's event is no different. We're diving into Ukraine to assess President Vladimir uh, Zelensky's first year in office and outlook for his next year. If you can think back in time to before COVID-19, I know it becomes harder and harder, uh, uh, you'll remember that for several months, Ukraine was front and center on US news broadcasts. Of course, the biggest reason for that was President Trump's dealings with Ukraine and a phone call between Presidents Trump and Zelensky that became a central piece of evidence in our impeachment process. Before he was unwittingly embroiled in US domestic politics, Zelensky was mainly known as the famous comedian who was unexpectedly elected president after starring in a TV show when his character too was unexpectedly elected president. Sometimes humor mirrors reality. In real life, Zelensky defeated the incumbent Petro Poroshenko in a landslide, winning over 73% of the votes. And a few months later, Zelensky's political party, Servant of the People, named after his TV show, won 254 out of 450 seats in parliament, creating an unprecedented one-party majority. Interestingly, as I, as I think about this, I recall uh, a trip to Ukraine that I took uh, it, for the election uh, of Petro Poroshenko. I was on an observer delegation headed by Madeleine Albright, and we interviewed the various candidates, including Petro Poroshenko, whom we all believed had the most promise of the field that was running. And he was uh, elected, uh, and the expectation was uh, that he would be an effective reformer. Well, segue to now. Uh, Zelensky's victories are a testament to, his, to the belief in the public, in the Ukrainian public, that he will be an effective reformer. And now his administration has to deliver on that promise. So today, our panel will grade his performance and discuss his progress on key promises to end the war in the Donbass region, reduce corruption, and improve the economy. We'll hear from Misha Minikoff, Senior Advisor for Ukraine at our very own Kennan Institute. Victor Andrushev, uh, Executive Director uh, to the Ukrainian Institute for the Future, and Gwendolyn Sase, Director of the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin. If today's event doesn't satisfy your appetite for Ukrainian news, uh, I encourage you to visit our Focus Ukraine blog, which offers rich analysis of the Zelensky administration and top officials, including contributions uh, by our panelists. Moderating our discussion, of course, 
is our very own uh, Matt Rajansky, the fabulous and, and, and properly admired director of the Kennan Institute. Thanks to you, Matt, and your team for putting this event together. And now over to you. Oh, thank you very much, Jane. Um, what a fitting introduction. Uh, except that I, uh, I might be admired, but I'm not properly attired because, of course, Zelensky's political color is green, and uh, that was not an intentional choice this morning. Um, we're starting to run out of colors in Ukraine. You know, we had orange and blue, and now green is off limits politically, so um, I, I guess I'll just have to go with white or a fake background. Um, I want to echo your plug, Jane, for the Focus Ukraine blog, uh, where you can read a lot of um, in-depth scholarly analysis, but that is not uh, overly wonky and academic. Um, this, is, this is one of the rare platforms on which you can read uh, what's going on in Ukraine, the deeper trends, uh, the, the society, uh, the politics, of course, the economy, energy, uh, history, and much more uh, on a level of depth that you simply do not get in the, in the press coverage of Ukraine. And I think that's very, very important, and I'm, I'm very proud uh, that with Misha Minakov's leadership, we're able to continue publishing that. Um, for the panel today, which is uh, every bit as uh, substantive and rich as Jane has said, um, submit your questions by email, as always, to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, Twitter at Kennan Institute, or uh, via our Facebook page. And please include your name and affiliation if you have one uh, when sending your questions. That will make it more likely that I will uh, ask one of your questions uh, if I know it's coming from a real human being and not a bot. Um, so uh, the, the challenge uh, to describe this uh, momentous eventful year for Ukraine uh, is a big one, uh, and that's even without the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Jane correctly described Zelensky's unexpected but meteoric rise uh, to a dominant position in Ukrainian politics, and uh, as I was uh, talking just before we started with uh, the panelists, uh, realizing that, you know, as, as recently as six or nine months ago, many of us who watch Ukraine closely uh, believed that it was a fundamentally different kind of political era in Ukraine. And yet within the last month or two, we have seen so much that is so reminiscent of the past in Ukrainian politics. So there are big, big questions about what really has changed beside the question that we posed in the title of today's panel, which is success or failure on the agenda that the Zelensky government has laid out uh, that Jane very correctly summarized. Peace in Eastern Ukraine, uh, anti-corruption, and progress on the Ukrainian economy. Um, there have been major uh, inflection points and challenges for Ukraine uh, besides the big policy issues, including yet another uh, airliner tragedy when following the killing of Qasem Soleimani, a Ukrainian airliner was shot down, uh, we understand, inadvertently by the Iranians. Uh, and then, of course, Ukraine being dragged into American uh, electoral politics, not once but twice, it now seems, a major challenge. And then you come to COVID-19, um, the challenge that President Zelensky has had to face, has had no choice but to face, uh, in his own flagging popularity, uh, support, and confidence numbers. So. To begin to put all of this into perspective for us, and it is a real challenge, and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, to her for joining us, uh, is uh, my wonderful colleague from Berlin, uh, Gwen Sasa, who has been the director of uh, the Center for East European and International Studies, known as SOAS, in Berlin since 2016. Uh, she's also a professor of comparative politics at Oxford, 
professorial fellow at Nuffield College and a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie Europe. So Gwen, I'll ask you to speak and then I'll introduce uh, Victor and Misha before they chime in, please. Thank you very much, Matt, and thank you for um, having me join this discussion. I think it's a good time to uh, look back at uh, Zelensky's first year in office. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to look back at um, the election a year ago and understand or try and understand why he was um, uh, elected uh, as somebody who was not known at all in, in politics. I will offer a quick, my own quick balance sheet of how far he's got and um, also um, look a little ahead and, and, and speculate what might lie ahead. In a nutshell, I think the, the balance sheet after his first year is a mixed one. And I want to include some identity issues as well, however, which do not normally figure prominently in um, assessments of policy performances um, after the first year. So why did he actually win uh, with 73% um, across Ukraine? So that merits um, emphasizing uh, because he was not only popular, as has often been the case in, in Ukrainian elections in certain parts of the country, but he won with a little pocket, exceptional a, a pocket in Western Ukraine. He won across the country. So he managed what other presidential candidates had not managed up to this point as somebody totally unknown. Um, and I think uh, his deliberately vague election campaign was one explanation for this, but also the fact the, the two issues he really highlighted um, resonated with the population. And they were, as they had, they, they had been uh, these issues before, the fight against corruption and uh, where he, uh, and the economy, of course, improving the economy, but where he also uh, emphasized something very different from his main uh, rival, the incumbent at the time, Poroshenko, was peace in eastern Ukraine and a potential compromise with Russia. These issues were and still are priorities for the Ukrainian population. At the moment, of course, and I'm sure we will discuss this, uh, COVID-19 um, interferes with these issues and might push them temporarily into the background. But connecting with the public sentiment across Ukraine really explains why a political newcomer like Zelensky could win. And it also shows that uh, Poroshenko himself um, and also the political and cultural elite um, around him really underestimated the widespread disappointment, um, hopes that had uh, been born by the Euromaidan had uh, not been fulfilled. And so a large uh, part of the electorate was willing to risk um, a newcomer, um, but thereby nevertheless expressing their big disappointment with in particular the fight against um, corruption that had become unstuck under Poroshenko as it had so many times before. I mentioned that I would like to put identity issues in the equation. And I think Zelensky, um, unlike Poroshenko, um, realized and also verbalized um, what had been going on in Ukrainian society for a while, but had actually strengthened during the war in eastern Ukraine. And that is that uh, a feeling, a civic identity focused on the Ukrainian state and Ukrainian citizenship had strengthened. So by not emphasizing, like Poroshenko, you might recall his election slogan was uh, army language faith, by not emphasizing these ethnic and linguistic and also war-related um, uh, parts of an identity, 
but to reach out to the whole of Ukraine or citizens of Ukraine, explicitly also addressing the citizens in Eastern Ukraine as citizens of Ukraine and also citizens of, in Crimea as citizens of Ukraine, he really picked up a public sentiment across Ukraine. And that is, I think, part of a balance sheet because he still also continues to do so. And this kind of an attitude, I would argue, strengthens the Ukrainian state um, from within. However, his other two, uh, or his two main uh, policy priorities, ending corruption and bringing peace um, to Eastern Ukraine, have clearly not been achieved. Now, one can say they were entirely unrealistic goals for one year, um, so we should probably be fair in our assessment there. And I think um, the other two speakers will address parts of this as well. But let me just say that with regard to um, the fight with corruption, uh, Zelensky started with a strong signal. And you will recall already in his inauguration speech, he um, announced early elections. He basically sacked the parliamentarians sitting in front of him. He announced and later saw through um, lifting parliament, the, the immunity of parliamentarians. And also after the elections, the early parliamentary elections that gave him a big majority in parliament for his still forming party, um, servant of the people. Uh, he uh, managed to send a strong signal that he had the, the basis for reforms. And he then, what is in Ukraine often referred to as turbo regime, uh, saw through in a rather, I would say, hierarchical style um, through his majority parliamentary faction a number of many um, complex reform uh, packages and leg legislation. And also uh, important positions were refilled, not only in government, but also in the various anti-corruption institutions. However, over time, and this is where we seem to come full circle, as Marta said, uh, this, this drive against corruption hits uh, a certain uh, threshold and barrier. And uh, we're seeing now that this, this initial quick drive um, it seems to be uh, coming to an end. On war, we can probably discuss that later in more detail. Uh, with regard to the war, I would say that at least um, Zelensky has brought um, a new momentum, or he did bring a new momentum to peace negotiations. And in ongoing wars, already recognizing and, and also talking about it publicly that um, you need to negotiate and that you will have to find a compromise is um, a, an important step. And he was part of the momentum that at least enabled the first um, summit uh, within the Normandy format uh, in December 2019. Probably also the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, wanted to, to, to check out his, his new counterpart in, in Ukraine. And these types of summits, although we're often quick to point out that they don't achieve very much, the big lines have not changed, um, the big positions have not changed, um, but they bring uh, local uh, changes and they are, they, they are therefore nevertheless important and not meeting at all at that level for several years can clearly not be good either. So there were some limited progress measures and, and some progress in terms of humanitarian measures, um, also in terms of um, the local withdrawal of troops, the rebuilding of a, of a bridge uh, across the so-called contact line, so some of these measures, are, these are important, um, but nevertheless, uh, there has not been a major move towards um, a lasting peace. The ceasefire still has not been achieved, and that's the starting point for any 
any real um, further negotiations. Um, in terms of uh, the current uh, position, together with uh, colleagues from George Washington University, uh, the National Academy of Sciences in Kiev and the University of Manchester, I have been collecting some uh, data in cooperation with the Kiev International Institute of Sociology and we, we asked for um, the approval rates or how much people uh, believe in Zelensky's current management of, of COVID-19, of the pandemic. And uh, other speakers might refer to this as well. It seems to me that although his popularity had been declining and it was bound to do so after such a landslide and victory once the reality of policymaking hits, hits home, but the COVID pandemic seems to buy him time. Um, his uh, approval ratings uh, were not terrible yet. They were still higher than Poroshenko's after the first year in office. Um, but now we see uh, in our own survey, we saw approval ratings of his management of the crisis. That's not of him overall, um, of about 55%, um, for example. Uh, we also see, uh, by the way, high uh, trust in local government officials dealing with the crisis. So perhaps as we move forward, we will see more of a divergence uh, between the national and local level in terms of various capacities, state capacities people um, observe. And there's also, and we can see this from our own poll, but also from various other um, opinion polls, there's still no real electoral alternative to Zelensky or his party, um, although um, he is now um, uh, further away from uh, the 73% landslide victory. But one has to also say that second round decisive um, elections between two candidates are not really comparable to overall popularity ratings of a number of um, uh, 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 candidates. And maybe just to um, conclude for the moment, um, I think the real uh, challenge going forward is uh, while the socioeconomic impact of COVID-19 becomes more obvious and a large part of Ukraine society is, um, is, is vulnerable um, in, in socioeconomic terms, um, the state will not be able to, to really offer the kind of economic assistance that um, some West European governments, for example, or the EU is, is putting in place. Um, his popularity is bound to uh, a decline. Um, the political implications of that are still unclear, but as he has now lost his, his majority in parliament and will have to uh, rely more on ad hoc coalitions going forward, I think um, he will find himself in a very difficult position. And I'll leave it here for the moment. Well, thank you very much, Gwen. Uh, your remarks in so many ways underscored the uh, surrealism of conducting what you might call kind of normal political analysis of, of you know, one year of any presidential administration in, in Ukraine, when it is not only a country at war, but it's also a country that faces uh, a pandemic. I, I was thinking through each of the metrics that you introduced and which you judged his performance and thinking, well, yes, of course, but there's a war going. Um, I want to turn, uh, before we get into the conversation, to Victor and Misha. Victor, first, please. Uh, Victor Andrusev is a Ukrainian political and civic activist. And since July 2016, he has been the executive director of the think tank Ukrainian Institute for the Future. And he gives us a perspective from on the ground in Kiev. Victor, please. Great. Uh, um, it's a day to see everybody alive in, in, in real life. 
Um, so uh, I was looking for some uh, uh, summary of the first year of Zelensky. And for me, it is like uh, the failure of uh, big myths about the Ukrainian politics. So we have for many years, and also we have this, um, uh, we have, uh, the West also ha had several myths about Ukraine and how to change Ukraine. And for me, Zelensky is the guy who really ruined uh, these uh, myths. The first one was for many years that we uh, lack a political will to change. Uh, Zelensky has shown the great will to change during this year. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, do you hear me? Yeah. So, uh, but as we see at the end uh, of the year, the only political will, it was not enough. So, um, uh, his results uh, were not dependent on political will. Uh, the second huge myth about uh, Ukrainian politics and change was that uh, we need young uh, and modern uh, people in government and in, in the ruling of the state process. Zelensky really uh, made this experiment, the huge experiment, uh, when he put really people who never served in, in the state machine, who never worked inside the bureaucracy, and for them, I would say that it was the first real work. He put the people uh, to become ministers who were unexperienced, but they were really honest and uh, they were really young and new. But the result of this was also awful because the government of Alexei Goncharuk has uh, failed on economic issues uh, and on economic development and it, it uh, uh, launched a lot of problems uh, which, which we have now and we will have later. Another one huge uh, myth also was that uh, it's enough to be honest. Uh, if you have honest president, if you have honest ministers, then you will succeed. Uh, again, this myth also failed because we had the honest uh, president, we had the honest ministers, but they were uh, uh, so incompetent that uh, they failed to show the success and, and, and the good results. So uh, I would summarize this year as, as a failure of big myths about uh, Ukraine and, and the way to change Ukraine. Um, so for the moment, if we treat uh, the year of Zelensky, uh, I would uh, shortly uh, say that it was Blitzkrieg, which later went in uh, the position, positional uh, warfare. So uh, it means that he really started very good. Uh, he uh, raised uh, and pushed the issues which for many years never were touched. For example, uh, member of parliament immunity. So they really canceled this, uh, this uh, article which actually motivated a lot of oligarchs and uh, bandits to go in politics because they were looking for immunity from the criminal uh, cases. So he also uh, lived uh, the question of the land. So it was like for 20 years, no one could uh, uh, lift it up, but Zelensky, he really lifted. Yes, it uh, had uh, to compromise uh, this issue, but he really achieved this. Also, uh, he was the first president who, at the beginning, was not working for the oligarchs. And uh, now, after the adoption of the 
uh, law on uh, not uh, giving back the banks, which actually is known as anti-Kolomoisky law. Uh, it means that he shows that he was never a servant of Kolomoisky, as it was uh, popular uh, to say about him. Uh, if we look for the moment we have now, uh, that it, it's everything is changing. The oligarchs capture the state again, they capture the parliament, and uh, the biggest problem that uh, in, in incompetence of the politicians that Zelensky brought in politics was the biggest problem, even in comparison to corruption. So the more incompetent people uh, are a big, bigger threat than uh, a good experienced corruptionist. And uh, from this regard, um, I do expect a huge political crisis for the autumn. And I really expect uh, the new elect parliamentary elections. And I do not exclude the elections of new president uh, next year. Uh, what was the biggest and also huge effect of this incompetence on the Ukrainian state? So we lost the central uh, management of the state because on the level of the ministers uh, and ministries, uh, a lot of incompetent people and uh, they do not uh, manage state properly. And the state now uh, stays on the local uh, councils and the local uh, mayors who are really uh, showing good results, especially in the question of uh, pandemic issues and, and so on. So uh, it means that uh, the central power is very weak. And, and this is a big problem because we go uh, into the local elections and uh, after the elections, if Zelensky will fail and his party will fail, the local uh, mayors and, and uh, feudals, I call them, they will feel themselves very comfortable and strong. And it means that they will not listen to Zelensky and uh, his uh, power in, uh, in Kyiv. And this also can lead to more uh, separation uh, trends and, and, and conflict trends uh, the region uh, versus uh, central state. So, uh, and finally, this crisis also can lead to the new elections of, uh, in the parliament. One more uh, issue I would like to touch is the issue of the conflict resolution. Uh, Zelensky also tried uh, to reach the, uh, to shift the peaceful process. He tried to look the new fields, the new questions, the new proposals. But uh, the reality was that he was not able to solve this problem because this problem can be solved only by Putin. And it was uh, a big also disappointment for Zelensky that he uh, didn't reach any big uh, victory in, in peaceful process. And I'm afraid that by the end of the year, he also will not achieve any shift uh, regarding the elections and bringing the uh, occupied territories back to Ukraine. Uh, so uh, we are going uh, also in deep economic crisis because quarantine uh, 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 has damaged Ukraine, uh, I'm afraid even more than pandemic, uh, because we have a, a big sector of shadow economics, which actually was supporting us all the time. And the quarantine was da uh, damaging ex exactly the shadow economics. And I'm afraid that in the next three months, we will uh, fall down uh, very, very deep. Uh, I mean, our economic growth. And with all this, also with, uh, as Gwendolyn already mentioned, he lost the majority in, uh, in the parliament. 
and also he lost uh, he lost uh, uh, support of MPs. Even his own uh, member of parliaments uh, do not support him. And the relations between him and his people are now more pragmatic than ideological, as it was a year ago when uh, they supported him by ideological issues. So I think that uh, this will lead to big crisis in uh, autumn, which will uh, go in the new elections uh, to the spring. Thank you very much, uh, Victor. Uh, I, I have a lot of questions for you uh, about Ukrainian politics, so I'll do my own blitzkrieg of questions uh, right after uh, Misha speaks. But I want to turn to Misha now. Uh, Misha Minakov is the Kennan Institute's senior advisor on Ukraine. He's the editor-in-chief of our Focus Ukraine uh, blog and also editor-in-chief of the journal Ideology and Politics. Misha, please. Uh, dear colleagues, it's nice to be here with you today. Let me show you several figures which could actually be uh, very um, uh, very instructive on what's going on in Ukraine. Do you see my uh, slides now? Okay, so uh, a year ago, uh, Zelensky has won by offering to Ukrainian voters a number of promises. Peace, anti-corruption, and economic betterment for the households. And Gwendolyn was talking about these major uh, issues, and indeed, there was like unfrozen process to reaching the peace, anti-corruption machinery that was built uh, in recent five years started working, although not delivering the effect expected so far, and economic betterment was expected for him uh, pretty soon. And instead, we have this problematic economic development recently, which was increased by the quarantine, uh, an economic decline, economic crisis, an energy crisis that we just published uh, yesterday, uh, an article by Andrian Prokip, uh, it shows how difficult the economic situation is. And here, Zelensky definitely is not delivering. With corruption issues, uh, in the first months of his presidency, there, there were many arrests and many people connected with two previous administrations were on the radars of uh, anti-corruption uh, agencies. However, in recent months, these uh, arrested uh, officials were released. Uh, and the, the major uh, achievement still worth mentioning that under Zelensky, the, the norm on legal embezzlement was returned in, into the criminal code, which is important part uh, of, of his achievements. Well, peace was very well discussed before, so I won't stop here, but it's not only the supporters who had expectations for the president, the, 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 those who supported uh, Petro Poroshenko or other candidates had several very clear fears about Zelensky. And we can look at them and assess the achievements of Zelensky as well. So basically based on my interviews in March last year with the supporters of Petro Poroshenko and Yulia Tymoshenko, there were three major fears that this is the pro-Russian president, that all power would go to Privat Group and Ihor Kolomoisky personally, and uh, <laughs> this political incompetence 
that is vested into the figure of president and his team would create give a damage. And Victor already told about this incompetence issue. On one side, voters and many intellectuals expected that the change of generations in Ukrainian politics would bring a, a change also in the quality of this politics. However, so far, there's no uh, reason to believe that it was uh, the case. Actually, as president himself, uh, I think it was in February, uh, noticed we, we actually need not only politicians with the new faces, but also with brains and hearts. And it's probably the, the, this change which is leading him. What concerns Kolomoisky, uh, to some extent, uh, the private group and uh, MPs that look at, uh, at Kolomoisky with sympathy, it's pretty substantial, but it's not the biggest part or big faction. Uh, and at the same time, we can see that the so-called Anti-Kolomoisky Act was approved, although there are many legal issues, constitutional issues around it. So here we can say that uh, this fear was not realistic. And then if we talk about, uh, about pro-Russian uh, fear uh, that concerns Zelensky, uh, there were no major concessions with Kremlin so far. The, uh, also, President Zelensky signed the law on secondary education that will close uh, Russian secondary uh, schools this year. The dream of Ukrainian nationalists is coming true by sign off by President Zelensky. And um, he continued the cultural policies that were started under Poroshenko. So uh, mainly, most of these fears uh, were not approved. However, if we look at what's happening with our society and political competition, it looks like uh, Zelensky still doesn't have any major rival. So there's probably a change in the mood of the voters, but there's no political figure who could actually start competing with him. So if uh, Viktor's prediction would come true and in next year we will see presidential elections, early presidential elections, then it's still questionable, would, this election, uh, would these elections change the president? So far, you can see that three major rivals in uh, today's political landscape cannot win from Zelensky in the, in the second round. Also, you can see here on this graph that in May uh, this year, Zelensky has the biggest uh, trust uh, in Ukrainian society. He is the president of trust, while the other political players have bigger distrust rather than trust. You, we can also look and compare the first year of President Poroshenko and President Zelensky. Here you see that there was a smooth path in distrust and, uh, in a way, distrust with the future of Ukraine by Ukrainian population in 2015. And in a way, Zelensky started following this trend in 2020. However, the uh, epidemics has changed a little bit this situation and the, the actions of Zelensky and his team were probably gaining him some sympathies again. So basically to conclude, I would say that the, the situation is pretty much nuanced and uh, uh, in a way, Ukrainian society is losing 
a lot of optimism that we gained last year, there's still a quest for the better future. And at the same time, uh, the, the political, let's put it in marketology terms, political market cannot offer any supply of a different leader to the demand of voters. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Misha. Um, I want to give the first question to Jane Harmon. Uh, Jane, if you're still with us, please go ahead. Hostess unmuted me, asked yes. me to start my video. Okay, here I am. What do you know? Um, thank you all for an absolutely brilliant presentation. That includes you, Matt, because uh, you picked the panel. And as depressing as it was, uh, I think, and sobering as it was, I think it 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 focuses the mind on next steps uh, to try to make a wonderful country fulfill its promise. I, I'm sure everyone listening on this call, and certainly everyone participating, loves Ukraine. I love Ukraine. I think it's an amazing country, and I was remembering that when I was there uh, as an election observer. You took me around the Maidan. And we looked at the memorials to those who died, these little handmade memorials all over the place. And it was so touching because their dreams were not fulfilled. But it doesn't lead me to believe dreams cannot be fulfilled. We also went to Odessa, which is one of the great old cities on the planet Earth. It's so beautiful. Um, but uh, here's, here's my question. Um, I understand that Ukraine uh, kind of traded corruption for incompetence. That's been made pretty clear. Sadly, younger people, new faces who don't know their jobs. When we were there in 2015, Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, asked uh, Poroshenko whether he might reach for the Ukrainian diaspora, which is all over the world. There's so many bright Ukrainians in the United States as one example, but I'm sure they're elsewhere might reach for the best and brightest outside of Ukraine and bring them in to help run the ministries. And he said he would do that. I think he didn't do it. My question is, is that an option now? I mean, could um, uh, Zelensky figure out that his government is failing because people don't know how to do their jobs, maybe even including him, and try to upscale, upgrade uh, the, the performance of his government? That is a great question, Jane. Uh, and in, in particular, I would note that Zelensky, in his inauguration speech, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, uh, had this very soaring rhetoric about how Ukraine is up here in the yeah. mind, and we welcome everybody to come back. So he definitely embraced this on the level of rhetoric. Uh, maybe we go to Victor first. What do you think, Victor? Is is that happening, and could it happen in a in a new configuration of the government? Well, actually, it's a proposal of every new president to bring the good skilled people uh, from abroad to Ukraine. And we have now jokes that Zelensky was the first who fulfilled it because he closed the borders because of pandemic. Yeah. So, uh, to be honest, um, the problem is about the institution. And even uh, if we talk about the involvement of the people who are really good skilled uh, abroad and they have to leave their house, their family, or their good uh, paid job to come to Ukraine, we have no infrastructure to accept them. So you can come, then you go for some competition, but you will lose because the competitions are still corruption. And also the new people, the Gonchoruk, he was promoting his people, 
uh, on a lot of top positions based just on the uh, on the positions that I know that man. So and uh, as the competitions were uh, just a fake, and uh, a lot of appointed people are now uh, kicked out of the uh, top position. Uh, independently on on the level of the competence, it's a question of trust. And then the new prime minister, he's uh, putting the persons he trusts. So the problem is, uh, and actually, uh, I think for the US is very important to study the first year of Zelensky, because this is the question of the strategy of United States uh, of United States here and in every new democracy. Uh, we, we you should uh, look through your strategy because. This year showed that a lot of things that uh, people hoped in, in, in US on some people, on some uh, some known activists and which are which have great support in Washington, they failed. And uh, this is the question of the strategy. Uh, so what what should be next? Uh, for sure, uh, Ukraine will uh, get the new chance in three or five years. We will have again new chance because we a state of chances that we lost. All the time, yeah. But uh, we will, every time we will receive a new chance, and uh, for that chance, what should be changed that we would not uh, lose it? And uh, for me, and I, I, I started now also some some work on that. That we need a strong institutions which prepare good skilled bureaucrats, uh, the statesmen, uh, people uh, who can uh, look to the procedures, to the laws, and, and they are good skilled. Uh, we have no such institutions in Ukraine because uh, our academy of public administration is totally ruined. And uh, for sure, uh, we need um, to build capacity, not to build, uh, I would say, some discourses about democracy. We need people who can bring all this to life. Uh, well, thank you, Victor. I want to, um, we have a lot of questions coming in uh, from email, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, I want to get to them in, in the limited time we have, but I want to just ask you one uh, precise follow-up question on something that you said. Um, and this is something I know you know very well, uh, given that uh, certain members of your family are in this body. You said that the RADA is, is no longer uh, supporting Zelensky. There's not a majority of support for Zelensky. So as both a technical matter and a matter of kind of political prediction, could we see a, a Yushchenko Yanukovych 2006 situation where early in the Zelensky presidency, the Rada shifts so strongly against him that he has essentially a hostile prime minister? Is, is that possible? No, no, for sure it's not possible. Uh, I, I would say that uh, more obvious, we'll see, we can see the situation of 2008 when Yushchenko tried to dissolve Rada, but he was uh, incapable to do that. And uh, I'm afraid Zelensky is already in that position, that he can try to dissolve it, but he uh, will not reach success. Uh, and this can lead to the also re-elections of the president and, and, and Rada later or, or at once. I, I, I consider such a scenario as the most, uh, the most real one. Uh, so uh, he, he, Zelensky is very weak uh, now uh, because we have uh, a case which actually showed that as uh, a case about the mayor of Cherkasy who publicly uh, well uh, said that Zelensky uh, he who publicly refused to obey to the pandemic uh, laws to quarantine 
and he blamed the president uh, of supporting some companies and other things. And then uh, Minister of Internal Affairs uh, threatened to mayor through the Twitter, uh, and Zelensky himself also threatened, uh, made, made a threat to this mayor in his video, uh, but nothing has happened. So they are, they are totally weak in managing the, the state and the institutions. Uh, so, and later, Zelensky publicly called the mayor a bandit. And then the mayor just publicly said, okay, look, when you were uh, uh, working for the bandits, I was staying on the Maidan. So, and this is, uh, this is like to say that the king is naked. Uh, so the mayor of Sherkasi showed that Zelensky has really huge support. He has good, uh, a lot of people and so on, but he has no real power. He cannot make him to obey to his laws and, and, and positions. So this is like, this like look like things. Um, okay, I want to go right to the many, many good questions that we've gotten. Um, I want to start with a question from uh, my colleague, Sam Cherup at the RAND Corporation. He directs this question to Gwen and uh, Mishka. You also commented on this. He says, Zelensky has not done much to re reverse the divisive legislation passed by Poroshenko uh, that undermined his agenda, uh, that I presume that means his agenda of in inclusion and uh, you know, talking about Eastern Ukrainians as citizens and so on. Uh, for example, uh, the language law passed at the very end of his presidency. Uh, why do you think he hasn't been willing to move more decisively on this issue? So Gwen, why don't we go to you for that? Yeah, this is correct. He has on a number of issues. He has, as I think Mihail also said, uh, continued uh, previous policies. So there is a um, certain discrepancy between his, his rhetoric and uh, the laws that remain in place. Um, however, I think it's a, it was a strategic decision not to um, overhaul these, uh, these policies uh, right away and live with this um, discrepancy. In the end, these laws are also not um, really implemented locally. So I think it, it just didn't seem a priority and why um, uh, basically give, give even more of a reason to a small but very um, vocal opposition that came out of the pro more pro-Poroshenko circles, uh, why give them even more ammunition um, at this um, moment in time when I don't think anybody is too concerned with these particular laws. So I think it was um, probably the right prioritization of what to do and what not to do. Uh, Misha, did you want to comment on that as well? Hey, uh, I would say that there's a, uh, an internal discussion within the team of Zelensky about cultural and identity issues, and there's no uh, no understanding within it. So Zelensky doesn't, doesn't want to uh, fragment even more his own team by changing this inertia of cultural policies from Poroshenko era. So that he looks at this uh, as, as the potentially very disruptive field for his own team. And in the recent uh, press conference, there was a direct question about the situation and about the Russian language in Ukraine and Zelensky avoided answering it. So that's basically his stance on it. Um, I wanna pose this question from John Denny at the US Army War College. Uh, he essentially asks if the Zelensky team uh, recognizes its own incompetence problem. Uh, several of you spoke about this. And if they do get it, 
uh, other than firing uh, the previous prime minister and putting in a new government, uh, which is sort of similarly inexperienced in many ways, are they reaching out to the EU, the US, NGOs, et cetera, try to, to try to backfill their competence problem? I mean, who, who are they reaching out to for help? Who, who wants to jump on that one? Victor? Um, okay, yes, uh, his team and him, uh, he personally really understands this. And uh, during his last press conference, he said uh, that uh, this is the biggest his problem, the lack of uh, competent people. And he said, I cannot find the competent people in Ukraine. And, uh, but uh, the problem is not about the lack of people. It's a question of approach. And the problem is his approach. Because if you appoint uh, uh, two ministers and you fired them in 20 days, it means uh, that uh, you have a really bad approach to, uh, to take people in, in government. Uh, and the same is uh, in his surrounding. Uh, he uh, uh, relies on people he knows uh, for many years. He does not rely on people who really are competent or really know the issues. The, he really trusts just to his people. And for sure, they are not competent. And these people take also not competent people uh, because they don't want to have somebody more clever or stronger than the than they are. So they finally got this negative uh, HR approach when you took uh, weaker and weaker and weaker. Yeah, so the question is only about the approach, not about uh, the really that we don't have uh, good skilled people in Ukraine. And also we will face the new big problem. A lot of really uh, brilliant people will not go in power because if you go there only for 20 days, if you have no warranties about what will happen to you next, because, for example, even if he kicked out the government of the Goncharov, he shouldn't do that in that way like he did. So, okay, put them on the ambassador, uh, put somebody as advisor, put them in some council, because people should understand that they have future uh, because they take risks when they go there. They leave uh, their good play jobs and families and so on, and then you just are kicked out and you have to start your life from the beginning. So I know already a lot of people who were invited to take uh, the position uh, in government, but they all refuse because they say we are not expecting that this is for long. Uh, if I may, uh, just to emphasize the second part of that question, another question from Antoinette Dimitrova uh, from Leiden University in the Netherlands. She, she asks again about the ministerial reforms that the EU and the EBRD have invested considerably in, uh, I think before the Zelensky years and ongoing. Uh, how is this working out? Is this is this also in any way helping in the in the competence issue? Uh, this this reform was a huge failure, but nobody wants uh, to talk about this because it costed a lot. So the problem was that reform was written uh, by the people who never were inside the Ukrainian ministries and the public administration. So they just brought the European Commission rules uh, to establish the. Uh, directorates and uh, and the heads of these directorates and so on. But uh, finally, I can tell you one real case. I met the uh, head of the Directorate for Innovations uh, and, and Science from the Ministry of Education. And he said to me that he's doing nothing because he was not implemented in the system. They just created the artificial uh, departments, the new directorates. And they had no capacities to work on that. 
Also, we have a huge scandal when the state secretary of the Ministry of Infrastructure was arrested for helping Russians uh, to take some secrets from Ukrainian uh, power. So uh, the state se uh, secretary was also the new idea, like it looks like it looked like new idea because it was actually old one because Kushma was promoting it. So uh, to say uh, this reform really failed and you have to understand that when we talk of the reforms, we should talk of the capacity to implement the reform because Zelensky and the parliament they adopted uh, uh, enormous uh, uh, number of laws which change everything. But this laws does not work even uh, on 10% uh, because nobody is implementing them. And uh, you, you have to understand that before uh, to develop the reform, before to uh, develop some uh, uh, consultancy and so on, you have to have the real capacity of uh, skilling the people, creating the system management uh, and other approaches which actually are not uh, uh, existing in, in Ukrainian uh, official state bodies. I can tell you the funny story that, for example, a lot of ministries and uh, public uh, bodies have no electronic documentation in Ukraine. So it's, it's not possible to, uh, when the society, the economics and everything is more developed than the state, because we have really good bank system. I mean, a lot of also uh, things electronically, but the state is like in medieval. You know, it, it occurs to me as I'm listening to you, Victor, we, we have a really um, easy and obvious way to understand the basic problem with reform in Ukraine as it has been practiced for decades, as I've been watching it up close, just as you have been, which is just because you change a rule or a law on paper doesn't change culture. And the, the easy way to understand that now is the pandemic uh, health guidelines. Just because you tell people, now you must wear a mask, now you must stand six feet apart, uh, now you must not leave 100 meters from your apartment, whatever, sure, some of the people will comply some of the time. But until the culture completely changes and this becomes an intuitive thing and the institutions are all configured in ways that make it easy to do this, uh, the idea that everyone's lives will transform because we, we wrote something down, or we issued an order, Unless you have a policeman standing there to enforce it, it's not realistic. Um, so it's a, it's a frustration I've had for a long time with the, the approach to reform. Uh, we Look, we've got um, at least three more questions I want to get to. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to ask two questions at the same time because they're kind of like opposite sides of a coin. And I'll let you, you all comment on them. Um, so the first uh, is, how would you evaluate Zelensky's commitment to military modernization uh, to meeting NATO standards? Uh, especially his commitment to civilian oversight of the military and reforming the general staff. That's on the one hand from Andrew Bowen uh, at the Congressional Research Service. Uh, and then from Twitter, from uh, Zach Pakin of the Cooperative Security Initiative, we have a question of whether there's a chance for more substantive talks about harmonization between the EU and the uh, uh, Eurasian uh, Economic Union so that Ukraine can essentially uh, have access to both, um, or or does Donbass have to be solved uh, and the war with Russia have to end before any such trade uh, harmonization would be possible? So on the one side, sort of NATO integration and reform. On the other side, uh, some 
some attempt to address the issue that you could say provoked the Maidan originally six years ago. Who wants to start? If I may. So uh, uh, I, I think here we are uh, in the period for, for, for about a year when basically the general staff and the Minister of Defense are the, on their own and they, they continue certain plans that were uh, prepared like in 2018-19, but with slowing down this process of better cooperation with NATO or uh, with the military reform, so, uh, security reform. Right now, you don't have many reports about this, and those, the, the, there is no visible uh, uh, change. However, if you talk, I, last time I was talking to several uh, senior officers from Ukrainian army in uh, February, and they were saying that right now, that when the attention is not paid too much to the ministry, they're actually progressing much more without this politicization of, of, of the process. Uh, but that's, you know, technocratic uh, internal uh, optics on what's going on. Whether it's really is the case, uh, it's difficult to say, you know, uh, defense sector is pretty much closed here for, for the external assessment. And uh, what concerns the cooperation with Eurasia, I think it's still, Ukraine is still not ready, neither politically nor economically for this. Uh, until the uh, Donbass and Crimean uh, issues are not at least somehow tackled, uh, the, the cooperation, the trade uh, with, the, with Russia and Eurasian Union will probably be problematic. Uh, and, and the other side of the coin, does uh, Gwen, would you maybe want to jump in on that? Do you, do you see, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm in particular, I'm curious about this from the EU standpoint, uh, you know, something the EU was unwilling to do six years ago, would it be seen as a benefit for Ukraine, especially recovering from the crisis? Uh, is it precluded by the lack of peace in Donbass? How do you see this prospect of EU, uh, Eurasian Union uh, sort of trade integration? Yes, I definitely think that the EU's uh, willingness to, to contemplate um, whether relations in both directions might be possible economically um, are um, uh, stopped by the unresolved um, uh, Donbass issue. And also um, the EU is uh, quite busy with itself at the moment, one can say all the time, but in particular at the moment. So I think the, the sad reality is also that um, Ukraine and other, part, other um, countries of the Eastern Partnership are not going to be the main priority as they put a, a first program, uh, support program in place, but um, they currently simply have other um, priorities. But one should also not forget that um, there has already been a serious reorientation of the Ukrainian economy towards um, the EU in particular. Um, so I think also from uh, within Ukraine, the the um, attractiveness at the moment of um, integrating into another economic union are very limited. Um, maybe adding to what was said before uh, about um, also oligarchic interests and, and the same kind of problems that, that uh, Ukraine keeps coming through in various cycles, the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement that uh, Ukraine has with the EU um, has actually um, mostly, as far as we can see, um, benefited um, larger enterprises and thereby also rent-seeking elites. 
So what is really necessary would be really to reorient towards smaller and medium-sized enterprises. This has not been um, uh, the real priority of, of EU policy towards Ukraine. And that would also be extremely needed now in the aftermath, if there is an aftermath of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, Victor, any comment on either the NATO military reform or uh, the trade issue? Uh, well, to say, well, I would say is that uh, this process politically and, and not connected to the war or uh, or Russia. So we're doing just we just have to do our job and and nobody can uh, can stop us. Uh, but uh, regarding the NATO issue, uh, I, I would uh, I would stress that look uh, that this um, the the year of Zelensky was also of transformation of Zelensky. Because uh, the first minister, Zahorodnyuk, he was very pro-NATO minister. He was young and he really was uh, adhering all the positions to moving Ukraine to NATO. The new one, Taran, is a Soviet bureaucrat, a Soviet uh, soldier who is not trusting to NATO standards and other things. So, and many experts stress that uh, our uh, actually reforms stopped and uh, take, take back. Uh, especially in the army, regarding the army. And uh, for example, in our institute, we also push some reform regarding the territorial defense. And because we need, uh, we have uh, a very bad situation on the front line because uh, a huge incomplexion of uh, the brigades uh, on the front line. And we have to create the state reserve uh, on the territorial defense uh, in case of war that we can mobilize them very quickly. But again, uh, everything uh, is now very slow. When, when uh, in the first half of his year, you came with the good ideas, with the good things, they took it at once, yeah, but nothing happened because there was no capacity to, make, uh, to bring it to life. Now, even the, your ideas are not taking. So in most cases, uh, people who serve now in government and others, so they, are, they already have some experience and they don't take any risk decisions. So they are just adhering. So I say it like they try to uh, flow down the river. Um, who, in, in the interest of time, we, we've only got about five minutes left. Um, let me ask each of you to comment on this uh, sort of broad question uh, and, and offer a closing thought. Um, this comes from Elena Denisova Schmidt uh, from the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. And she says, given that many young people leave the country, Decision makers can be inexperienced. The war in the East is still going. Uh, and frankly, everything else as you guys have said, uh, what do you think the outlook is for Ukraine's next young generation? I, 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 yeah, oh, go, go ahead, Victor. Microphone. Yeah. Okay, uh, so look, um, I would not treat uh, something as, uh, as, as you know, uh, as the final stage, yeah. So if we are in this position, so this is the end. No, uh, we were at the end in uh, 14 and then before. <laughs> so every time we show that we can find the new chances to change something or, or the will of society to change is huge. Because if you will look uh, to the support of Zelensky in the year, they support him, but this support is not because of Zelensky, because society do not support the old one people. Uh, if you will look to the political parties, the party of the president, they lost a lot of support, but uh, the old one didn't gain it. 
So we have now like 22% of people who uh, has no choice. Uh, they are not uh, defined whom will they uh, will elect in the next elections. So it means that society itself is very healthy in the desire to change and reform. Yes, we have no capacity and we will do a lot of that, but this, there will be no final stage. So the young generation will leave now and when we will get the new Maidan on the revolution or other things, they will come back. It always happens like that. Uh, Gwen, let me uh, put you on the spot if I can, because I, I actually remember uh, talking about this issue of the young generation and out-migration and so forth uh, on one of my visits to Tsoas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's probably worth pointing out um, that at the moment we, we've seen the opposite trend. And because of COVID-19, um, uh, a large proportion of Ukrainian migrants has moved back, which actually adds to the socioeconomic challenges at a time when there will be no more or newer jobs. So I think for the time being, at least, this um, significant out-migration um, is at least paused. Um, but I think, nevertheless, I also see it a bit like Victor more in, in cycles, because a lot of uh, migration is in and out migration or cyclical migration or migration um, of young people for educational purposes and then they stay on. So, so I think I, I, I completely agree with Victor that I think this, um, uh, this, this, this willingness to somehow hope to, to move Ukraine along is, is, is strong and is strong among the young. And it is, however, interesting just to emphasize what Victor said as well, that uh, we see in the survey data as well that um, across the board that the younger population still supports um, Zelensky more, which I also interpret as a, a lack of other alternatives. Um, and maybe it's worth emphasizing um, two things again. I mean, I think Zelensky also um, uh, I mean, panicked. I think he looks too much at his own approval ratings. So he, we, we talked about who he needs to get into government next from abroad or, or and nobody is probably going willing to, to do this soon. I mean, he fired uh, a prime minister and a prosecutor general um, who were largely seen as, as competent domestically and internationally. So he, he started using this as, uh, as a means to, to fight the, the gradual decline in popularity, but this is a means that you can't use several times and then changing the finance minister several times over and a health minister at the beginning of a pandemic, this cannot bring about trust um, with the young or the old in the country and abroad. So I think that's a really important point. And the final um, point that I think we haven't emphasized enough today, um, and if to, for, for my closing remark on a positive note, I think there's a lot happening at the local level. And I think that is an area both domestically and also with international, including EU support, the area of decentralization reform. And I think what we're seeing during the pandemic now as well, Victor pointed out this, this uh, divergence um, and also um, an increasing challenge from below for Zelensky. But that's also where the hope is to ultimately rebuild the state from below. Um, that might be the only way in, in, in which one can, can substantially reform it. But it's going on, that process is going on. And, and I think that's also where, where the optimism still lies. Thank you, Gwen. Misha, you get the final thought. Yeah, I would like just to uh, say here, uh, yes, we talk about a lot of problems at central government level. However, uh, Ukraine has shown resilience as a country, as a society, even as, a, as economy to many problems. So in a way, yes, there, there are institutional per, uh, personnel problems. However, um, I'm sure that in a year long, we can gather together again. And actually, 
uh, we may talk about Ukraine and other challenges. However, this year will pass and Ukraine will develop. Uh, that's it. Well, uh, I want to thank all three of you for uh, an exceptionally uh, deep and thoughtful conversation about a very difficult and enormous topic. It's something I think we're going to continue to talk about in the future. Uh, the saga of the Zelensky uh, era in Ukraine, along with the COVID era and the era of renewed uh, war in Europe, none of these things, I'm afraid, are leaving us anytime soon, uh, and we'll continue to pay close attention. So. I want to thank all three of the panelists, uh, Gwen, Victor, Misha, outstanding work. I want to thank all of you for your excellent questions and apologize to those that I didn't get to. Uh, you can continue the conversation on social media. Uh, please follow our blog, uh, Focus Ukraine, uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Matt.